Well, if you would turn your worship guide to page 9 for the sermon text, or if you'd like to use your own Bible, or Bible app, we're in Psalm 4. Now we'll give you a moment to find it. Okay. Psalm 4. To the choir master. Yeah, please stand. This is this is awesome. We're doing this together. Uh, to the choir master with stringed instruments, the Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Say what? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and the Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Okay, so we're taking the month of January. Um, and hanging out in the Psalms for a while. We're going to do this week and then next week in the Psalms. And after that, we'll do a long series on uh, what's called the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, the purpose and mission of the church. But until then, here in January, we are just parking here in the Psalms. So last week, Scott did Psalm 3, which is, it was awesome. Psalm 3 is a song about Trusting in God when you're in a tight spot. Uh, I think, Scott, listen to your sermon from last week. You said the word tight spot many, many times. <laughs> and that's good. That's what Psalm 3 is all about. It's about what to do, what David did, King David who wrote it, what he did when he was in a tight spot of his son Absalom leading a revolt to try to take the throne uh, in Israel. David prayed Psalm 3. Well, this week we're doing Psalm 4. And part of the challenge is that Psalm 4 and Psalm 3 are so closely related. In fact, I took a bunch of notes for the sermon uh, I'm preaching now. Uh, and because last week I was, out, uh, I was out, I listened to Scott's sermon. And so many things I wanted to say about Psalm 4, he said last week was Psalm 3. Which means he preached an awesome sermon. <laughs> so, in all seriousness, though, they go together. Uh, Psalm 3, we can see these, these psalms have uh, superscripts or titles 
then look in the Bible or in worship guide, the all caps above the text. Psalm 3, it says that David wrote it when his son Absalom was, when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. And in this psalm, it says that it's to the choir master with stringed instruments, the psalm of David. That means that, well, these titles, these psalm titles, uh, you know, we don't really know if they were a part of the original text. We believe it was not just written by human beings, but was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was trustworthy and infallible and inerrant. We can really trust it. We don't know if these psalm titles were part of that or not. We do know that they were there really, really early on. So, at minimum, they provide for us a clue on how the early readers of this psalm interpreted it and how they applied it. So, we know that for generations and generations and generations and generations, uh, Psalm 3 has been understood as David's personal song reaching out to God in a tight spot of his kingdom falling apart. We also know that Psalm 4 for generations and for generations and generations, has been understood as David's public song for what the people of God in general should do when we find ourselves in a tight spot. Psalm 3 was something he wrote when he was having a hard time with his son and his kingdom. Psalm 4 is something that he wrote for choirs to sing and for us to sing with stringed instruments. In fact, just a moment ago, during the offering, and we'll, we'll do it again after the sermon, we sang a poetic adaptation of Psalm 4 with a stringed instrument, a guitar. So when we sing psalms, or psalms adapted into you know, English that rhymes, or, or uh, adapted in some kind of poetic form, when we sing psalms together and there's guitars, we're doing something that is, uh, is biblical. Or at least very, 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 very traditional for the people of God. So that's how we look at Psalm 4. It's poetic, it's expressive, and it's for us. This is our song. And it's for when we find ourselves in tight spots. Um, that first verse, it opens up, Psalm 4 opens up with a prayer. He, he says... Um, Speaking to God, David writes, Answer me when I call God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. That word distress uh, in the Hebrew, I'll make sure I pronounce this the best I can, shar, uh, it has that connotation of being cornered, of being uh, pushed up against, being in a tight spot, or as Scott talked about last week, being constricted. So I wonder, as we read this, this is our song for when we feel in a tight spot. Have you ever felt like you were in a tight spot in life? And I know the answer is yes, because we're human beings and life is hard. But think about it. When's the last time you had a crisis? Maybe you're in one right now. When I was growing up, my dad used to tell me, and used to say to other people, it's one of the things my dad said, dad say things. Uh, he, said, he said, son, you are either in a crisis right now, or you just got through a crisis, or you're about to be in one. <laughs> and he would say that all the time. He said, you know, that's just what it means to be human. Either we just went through something hard, or you're going through something hard right now. Or if you think that maybe you got out of going through hard things, it's right around the corner. This is universal. So when's the last time you had a crisis? 
Maybe it was something that was related uh, to COVID. Life is kind of weird right now. We're two years into a global pandemic. Uh, Lord willing, it's coming to an end. But if we've learned anything over the last two years, maybe not. We've been in crisis. Uh, maybe as you think about when the last time you were in crisis was, or maybe you're in it right now, maybe you had a relational difficulty. Maybe somebody in your family you just can't go along with, and it seems like it's just pressing in on you, or somebody at work, or a friend. Crises happen all the time. That's what this psalm is for. It gives us language. It gives us a way that we can express ourselves to God, that we can cry out to God. And it teaches us something about how God delivers us when we are in a crisis. It opens up with that first verse. It opens up with these words, answer me. Answer me when I call. Now, uh, kids, what would happen if you went to your parents when you, you wanted something and you walked right up to your mom or your dad or your grown-up and you just walked up and instead of saying, excuse me, mom, excuse me, dad, excuse me, uh, instead of that, you just went up and said, hey, answer me. <laughs> that, that might not work out so well because when we talk to our parents or talk to our grown-ups, kids, we, we, we want to be respectful, right? And folks, when we talk to God, we want to be respectful, right? David here writing, not just for himself, but also for us, starts with telling God to do something. Answer me when I call to you. <laughs> and maybe he doesn't have to have that sort of edge, but even if we try to say it nicely, it still comes out very, very confident, doesn't it? He doesn't start with, oh Lord, um, it's me, uh, remember me, David, or um, I'll just speak for myself. Remember me as Charlie, Charlie from Portland? Okay, uh, well if you're not too busy, uh, I'd like something again. He doesn't start like that. He doesn't start with trying to use formal flowery language to get our, you know, get, get religious so God will hear, oh, thou wast great, you know. Answer me when I call to you. That confidence is supposed to stand out to us from verse 1. Because throughout the whole psalm, the theme, the foundation, and the lesson that the psalm teaches us is all about being confident in God, in our relationship to Him, in who He is, in what He's able to do, in what He's done for us before. Answer me when I call to you, when I'm in distress. You've helped me before, Lord. He is so confident. And in the psalm, He repeats this confidence thing. Put your trust in the Lord. He talks about being so confident in God that even in the midst of a crisis, he lays down and he sleeps. Confidence in God. So here's the big question for the psalm. Here's what we're supposed to learn from it. What do you do when you are in the midst of a crisis? What do you do when you're in a tight spot? Because we all go through it. And the answer is put your confidence in God. Being confident in God is the key to faring a crisis well. That's the big idea. That's the message. Now, I think we have a little bit of time. We could stop there because that's the big idea of the song. But I want to show you how that works. Because it does come across as maybe a little bit two-dimensional, doesn't it? It seems a little bit trite. A little bit like, 
Something that like you cross stitch and hang up on the wall. Put your confidence in God. Which I like cross stitch stuff. I really do. We have cross stitch Star Trek stuff in our house and I love it. If you want to come over, I'll show it to you. But it's not like an inspirational. It, it just seems. Well, have you ever been had a hard time and you've gone to somebody you trust or you care about what they think? You say, what do I do? And they just say, just put your confidence in God. Trust God. And you go, well, how am I supposed to do that? Or how is that supposed to help anything? Or that just seems like a little bit, uh, you know, like you just patted me on the head and sent me away. How does putting our confidence in God have any substance when we face real life crises? When relationships that we care about break down, when we lose our jobs, when someone in our family uh, uh, passes away, when we get a bad diagnosis from the doctor, when you just can't stand another day of COVID restrictions, when you actually get COVID, or when somebody that you love gets COVID and doesn't fare well through it. These kinds of things happen to all of us. How, how does confidence in God serve as a real key that unlocks peace in a crisis. And what does it mean to really trust him? Beyond just a pat on the head, you know, reference to maybe like an inspirational thing that you'd hang on the wall. Well, David in the Psalm shows us three things that confidence in God does. Uh, and it actually happens to be three things. It's not just because it's a sermon. I know a lot of sermons have three things. There's actually three things. The psalm moves through three movements, showing us how confidence in God is the key to peace in the midst of a crisis. Here's the first one. If you're a sermon note taker, this is your, this is your big number one. Confidence in God confronts our denial. Confidence in God confronts our denial. Look with me at verse 2. You know, David starts this as a prayer. Answer me when I call, O God. But then by verse 2, he stops talking to God and he starts talking to people. He says, O men. And that word there, O men, some translations might say men of rank. Uh, it's Seems like here in the poetic language, David is addressing his officials, his friends in the royal entourage, or maybe his army. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? And how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? What we see here is David was in a crisis. David's writing for us when we're in a crisis. And when David was hurting, Maybe this was in reference to that same ordeal with his son Absalom, trying to take the throne, throw, overthrow uh, David's kingship. When David was hurting, the men around him, the people around him, his friends, his confidants, maybe even his own military, were in denial, seeking after lies, vain words. And he says, how long are you going to deny what's really going on here? You know, denial is um, choosing, or maybe even subconsciously not choosing, you just get into it. Something that isn't true in order to cope with the reality of something that is true that maybe you don't think you can handle. 
Denial is believing something false in order to escape the harshness of something that is true or real. And it's very common. And we don't always choose it. And you know what? It's not always a bad thing. It's a, sometimes it's very natural for us to be, no way, I, I don't believe it. Denial is one of the stages of grief. It's okay to pass through denial. It's not okay to set up camp in denial. That just leads to more pain. But when we're confident in God, it confronts denial. David strengthened in his resolve to place his trust in God. Oh God, answer me when I call God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress, speaking of something that happened before. And he says, he's, the connotation is, you did it before, Lord, do it again. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Oh, men, friends, how long are you going to turn my honor into shame by believing lies? What's for this struggle in me is real. Have you ever been through something that was hard and you shared it with a friend or a family member and they said, oh, it's, it's no big deal. It, it's okay. You know what? It's, it's really not that bad. Sometimes people say that because they're trying to help. Man, that, that hurts. That's, that feels like somebody sometimes putting shame on your head. I know that, um, speaking from my own life, many of you know that I struggle with a vision disability. And there have been many times in my life um, where, you know, I'll, somebody will ask about it or I'll say something about it and somebody will come up and say, tell me about your eyesight. And well, I have this combination of disorders and here's what I struggle with. And, and people will say, oh, you know, I totally understand. I, I have to wear glasses. Uh, and it's like, oh, okay. That, that makes me feel terrible. But confidence in God confronts denial. How long? We don't have to do this, guys. How long are you going to believe these lies? And then David goes on to speak truth to the men around him that are denying him. He speaks confident truth. He says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And the Lord hears when I call to him. David speaks to the true reality that his relationship to God is unique. As a believer in the true God, as a member of God's covenant people, he knows that when he reaches out to God in a crisis, and when crisis hits, he can not only lean on God because God is big and powerful and can do anything. He can lean on God and admit the reality of the crisis. Speak the truth about the crisis and not be afraid because he belongs to God. God sets apart godly people for himself. What David is saying here, in essence, is, guys, you're believing falsehood. You're denying what's really going on. That feels shameful to me. Come on, come out of it. Let's speak the truth about what's going on. Don't you know that we belong to God? And our unique relationship, our covenant relationship with God, actually gives us a different kind of confidence. We know that He sees us. 
we know that he hears us. In Revelation 5.9, it says that Jesus, with his blood, purchased a people for God. That means that those of us who believe in him, who put our trust in him, we are bought and paid for. That's why Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Folks, when you belong to God, not just by way of your own personal choice to affiliate with him, but because God became a man and shed his blood to, as, as currency to purchase your life. Do you think that any crisis is going to be too small or too big for him to care about? Not a chance. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, I am sure neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, the kind of confidence in God that we reach for in a crisis runs so deep and it's available to anyone who looks to Jesus for salvation. It's confidence that rests in our belonging to him. And there is no crisis. There is no pain. There's no pandemic. There's no relational fallout. There is no sickness. There's no diagnosis. There's no hard time that can break that bond of love that God has with you in Christ. Confidence in God confronts denial. Here's the second thing. Confidence in God calms our rage. Confidence in God calms our rage. It says in verse 4, David writes in his song, a song for us, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. You know, it's totally natural when crisis hits for us to get angry. Anger is the emotion that happens when you expect things to be one way and then out of your control for whatever reason they turn out a different way. And that rubs up against you. It causes anger. And you know what? Sometimes anger is inappropriate, but very often anger is totally appropriate. When injustice occurs, it's right to be angry. angry. When somebody's hurting somebody else or stealing from somebody else, or putting somebody else in a tight spot. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to get frustrated when we, the things that we long for, the things we want to do, they just don't work out because of the brokenness in the world. It's okay to be frustrated and be angry when, for example, when someone you love walks away from the faith or rejects you because of what you believe. It's okay to feel that. It's okay to be angry when you look back at your life and you say, I'm this old and I thought it was going to be a lot different, but my life is way more broken than I ever want it to be. It's okay to be frustrated. Sin was never supposed to mess up our lives. We chose it, yes. But we don't just suffer because of our own sin. Sometimes we suffer from other people's sins. Sometimes we just suffer because we live in a sinful, broken world. It's okay but it's not okay to cling to that anger, to drop anchor in that anger, and then to use that anger to make you feel powerful. 
It's not okay when anger turns to rage. When we lean on our anger to try to fix the problem. You see what I'm talking about? When we feel powerless, we often get angry. When we get angry, the arms of rage are wide open. Uh, I think about, for this, I think about, um, we all experienced over the last two years, especially early on in 2020, uh, when the protests here in town began to get violent. When anger turned to rage. When either protesters or authorities uh, escalated, discharged weapons, started to hurt people. Anger turned into rage. And rage does not solve problems. Rage does not make things better. And we feel that. Some of us got angry about that. Some of us let our anger turn into rage about that. I, I myself, there are times when I just, I got so fed up about how, you know, here's a bunch of people trying to go down there and have a good peaceful protest. Look what happened. Oh, I'm so angry, I'm so mad. And all of us, we feel that temptation to cling to anger for it because it feels like it's giving us power. It feels like we're really getting something done if we can camp out in anger. But here David says, be angry. It's okay, but don't sin. When you're angry, don't sin. Don't cling to it. Cling to God. Don't cling to anger. And then he speaks the truth. He gives the angry person something to do. He says, ponder in your hearts and on your beds and be silent. When you feel that anger start to bubble up and you want to grab a hold of it like some kind of weapon and use it to just get in there, I'm going to fix this by, ooh, I got some rage. When you feel that, the psalm says, be quiet. This is pondering your heart. On your bed. Do you know? Do you know who besides you knows what's going on in your heart when you're in your bed? God. When you're there in the quiet of the night, when it's just you, and you got something going on deep in your heart, you know who sees it? God does. David is saying, "Look, when you when you feel that anger, don't sin." Ponder it in your heart, on your bed. Be quiet. Bring it before the Lord. In the secrecy of your covenant relationship with Him, He set you apart. Bring it to Him. This is 1 Peter, it says, the Apostle Peter writes, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So at the right time, He may exalt you, casting your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. When the Bible talks about God's mighty hand. Usually it's a reference to the Exodus. When God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt. God said to the people, he said, I'm going to deliver you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's God's delivering power. That's God's power to get in there and set you free from your brokenness. And Peter says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Let God do the delivering. Let God do the work. And then he says, cast your anxieties on him. That word that Peter uses in the Greek for cast 
Actually, what it means is throw. Peter's saying, throw your anxieties on him. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and do some sort of like emotional verbal vomit on you? They come up and they go, how you doing? They're actually, everything's terrible. And then they just unload all of their grace. And you go, wow, okay. uh, All right. The Bible says do that to God. When you, in the middle of the night, can't sleep, when you feel anger at brokenness in your life or in the world, don't cling to it. Bring it to the Lord. Know that He's mighty. Know that in His character, in His being, He is a deliverer. He always has been. He always will be. He sees you. Humble yourself under that. And then throw your anxiety at Him. You know, God's mighty hand against injustice, against brokenness, against the kind of sickness and death that affects the world as a result of our rebellion from Him way back at the beginning, God's mighty hand against brokenness was shown. He showed His hand at the cross of Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, He received the rage of the world. The world raged against Him as God's anointed. And he fell and he died underneath that rage. But God showed his mighty hand by raising Jesus from the dead. By vindicating Jesus. And vindicating everyone who is united to Jesus by faith. Jesus rose up from the ashes of falling. It says in the creed, it says he descended to hell. He was fully under the power of death brokenness, messed upness, and crisis. But God raised him from the dead so that you and I, joined with Jesus by faith, we can experience that resurrection power in our life. So be angry. But don't sin. Don't cling to it. Ponder in your heart. Ponder in private what God is doing in the world and what he does for you. One of my favorite preachers says he was talking uh, to a room uh, about injustice, specifically racial injustice. And he spoke to the people in the room that had experienced racial injustice themselves. He said, folks, you might be a victim. No, back up, Charlie. He says, folks, you may have been victimized by racial injustice, but you are not a victim you belong to Jesus. You are a son or daughter of God. Folks, that's true. So, confidence in God, it confronts our denial, it calms our rage. It gives us a place to go and put our rage. It gives us somebody who hears us in the night when we need to just throw all of our anxieties on Him. Next, confidence in God recalibrates our joy. Look with me uh, at verse 6. It says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and their wine abound. This first part, David says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? 
Uh, the commentator Derek Kidner, who wrote a great commentary on the Psalms, he says that, um, oh, how did he put it? What were his exact words? He said, this verse is about those who sigh for better times. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Those who sigh for better times. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, man, oh, it's hard times. But, oh, you know, they're, they're going to get better. Uh, once, uh, you know, once the economy takes a turn, uh, you, know, once, once, you know, once COVID is going to pass through, uh, they'll be, they'll be just, we just got to look, look to better times. David says, there are many who say that. Uh, and then he says, uh, but you, speaking to God, you have put more joy in my heart than those people who just look forward to the next better time. And those people have when grain and wine abound. Here's what, here's what David is saying. It's perfectly natural for us when we're in a crisis to, to, to look forward to when it's over and try to lean on that looking forward optimism. David says that many, many people do that. And I don't even think he condemns that. I think that's, that's an okay thing to look forward to when things are going to get better. But he says, God, you have put more joy in my heart even when times are bad. Even when everything is rotten, then when the people who are just always looking forward to better times, then they have when things are good. When wine and when grain abound. David is saying that confidence in God recalibrates our joy. I heard a preacher one time talking about joy and what it means to have joy in the Lord and people who try to find joy in other places. And he said, he said, you know, you know what the problem is with trying to find your joy in worldly things? People who are satisfied with just making a lot of money and, you know, uh, having a good love life and maybe driving fast cars and cool electric guitars. I feel that one in there for me. And you know what the problem is with people who just try to find their joy there? Uh, and, of course, I'm listening. What is it? And he said, their pleasure meter is, um, their pleasure meter is broken. I said, what is a pleasure meter? And he goes on to draw out this illustration of like a, like a gauge on a car, like a, like a speedometer. And he's like, all of us have a little pleasure meter in our brains, and it tells us, you know, how good things are. And he said, you know what? Your pleasure meter needs to be calibrated for the kind of joy that God gives. It's so much greater. It's so much bigger. And folks, I think a lot of us, we need to have our joy recalibrated. There is a way to feel joy, to feel deep, settled, sit down on the inside and break out in song joy, even when the world is falling apart. Okay, we've got to wrap up because we're running out of time. So last question, how do we get it? How do we get this confidence in God? I'm skipping a bunch of stuff. We're just going to go right to the end, okay? How do we get it? Charlie, you talked all about it. I want it. I want this confidence. Give it to me. One dollar, Bob. Let's go. Come on. Confidence in God. How do we get it? This kind of confidence in God. Well, here's the thing. Uh, Bad news and good news. Bad news. It's not something that you can muster up for yourself. You can't get there. You can't exercise your spiritual muscles until you get there. You can't be optimistic enough. We already talked about that. Uh, you can't do enough uh, good works. You can't achieve it. You can't 
can't believe hard enough. You, you can't get the kind of truth-telling, calming, joy-bringing, can withstand any crisis confidence in God of your own power. Uh, the only way to get it. Well, there's a clue in the last verse. Listen to this. In peace, I both lay down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The only way to get it is to stop trying. And realize that God alone is the only one who has power to deliver you from your crisis. Faith in God, the kind that saves, the confidence in God that can get you through anything, doesn't come because you're a good person. doesn't come because you try hard enough. doesn't come because you go to church enough times, or you give money, or you, or you stop doing that bad thing. No. It only comes from the power of the gospel, the resurrection power that took Jesus to the cross, into the tomb, and then raised him from the dead so we could be united with God. It's a gift. It's a gift that comes when we put our trust in Jesus, when we look to him. And that's why the psalm starts with, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Not answer me when I call, God, because I'm righteous. Answer me when I call, because my righteousness only comes from you. Let's pray.